What's good? What's good, party people? Welcome to Candid Conversations. I am Candia Johnson, a woman on a mission to help you show up and speak up anyway, despite dealing with fear, uncertainty, or self-doubt. You know, I kind of think everyone needs to have a lawyer's number on speed dial. Not so much to help you avoid a lawsuit or prepare for one, (laughs) but lawyers are some of the best people who can teach you how to prepare for a debate or even an argument without all of the emotion, of course. They are some of the best people who can teach you how to engage a room full of people and influence them to take action. On top of everything else, considering the field of law is one of the least diverse professions in the nation, if you meet a lawyer who's a woman, a black woman or a woman of color, they could also probably teach you a thing or two about how to deal with the voice in your head that tells you you don't belong here. You know that voice in your head that tells you you must be a fraud or unqualified? Because let's face it, sometimes when you walk into a room and you don't see people who look like you, a feeling of inadequacy can take over. It can erase everything that you've went to school for. (laughs) So today's guest is Tanya Williams, and she's an attorney who's dropping truth bombs on everything, y'all, from the pep talk that she gives herself to get her mind right before court to ways to use storytelling to engage and move people to take action, because that's what most of us want. And I just love her tips for preparing for the pushback, because the pushback is inevitable. In your career, in the workplace, there are going to be times when people disagree with you or they disagree with your advice. Okay, so listen and let me know what you think. Welcome to the Candid Conversations podcast, Tanya. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am excited too. Now, of course, I've been lovingly stalking you, so I know your background. (laughs) Uh, Tell the people a little bit about yourself. So I'm a lawyer, but here's how this happened. The oil of Olay is working really well in my life because I'm much older than I look. I've been a lawyer for about 18 years now, since 2002. And I started as a prosecutor, tried more cases than I knew what to do with. And then I was going to go walk the red carpet with Will Smith because that's what entertainment lawyers do. That is not what entertainment lawyers do. And I didn't know that until I was already three years in, in California. Got the LLM in media and entertainment law, passed the California bar on the first try because God loves me, but was doing insurance defense. Didn't even know it was insurance defense at the time when I was doing it, but that's what I was doing. And then came back to Florida because my mom was just getting sick a little more than I wanted her to. And having to hop a flight just wasn't in the plan. So I came back to Florida in 2008 and was doing what? Foreclosures like everybody else because the bottom had just fell out and the recession was in full swing and then started teaching where I went to law school at Nova did that for about six years from like 2009 to 2015 and then came back out on my own doing what I now knew was insurance defense and did that for a while and decided to go out on my own and was doing that from 2016 until January of 2021, when we swore in our first African-American man in the position of state attorney down here in Florida. I then became the assistant state attorney in charge of merit retention, recruitment, and training. It's a lot to say, it really is. 
But that's what I do. I still do train lawyers how to do trials. That's my company. But I also now do it for the state attorney's office. Wow. So what inspired you to choose law as a career? So according to my mama, I would stand on the toilet and argue why we should not get in trouble. For me, it was always what I wanted to do. So I have a Caribbean background. And when your family is from Jamaica, you got three options. Lawyer, doctor, teacher, pick one. I went with lawyer because doctor was not my thing. And teacher just didn't sound as fun to me. I know it's awesome. God bless all the teachers. But I was not built for that. So lawyer, I was like, cool. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what I've wanted to do ever since I can remember. Wow. Okay. Okay. So I'm always interested. I'm, I'm glad your mama brought that up because <laughs> I often think sometimes I get in this reflective space and I'm like, what are the connect the dots moments from mm. my childhood to where I am now? And of mm. course we have sometimes, like you said, your family, you have three choices, but then sure. I do believe that sometimes as kids, you can reflect back and see some of the things that uh, you loved or just certain principles you've had and they crinkle into your final kind of career choice or your passion for what you stand for in life. And I know for me, you are a lawyer, but I I stumbled upon your background and I started following your work on LinkedIn. And I'm like, listen, I love this advice on owning the room and speaking up for yourself, not leaving money on the table. And I Mm -hmm. felt although your articles are targeted towards other trial attorneys, Mm -hmm. for me, your advice is perfect for anyone looking to advance in their career and step into the next best version of yourself. So when you think about though your passion for teaching other trial attorneys, what events in your career, in the courtroom Mm -hmm. or what have you, inspired you to want to turn around and say, I want to teach other trial attorneys. Okay, so I started as a prosecutor and the training we had did not prepare us for the fire to come. Mm -hmm. So I did get training, I can't say I didn't, but the training was not, this is how you try a case. The training was, here's what you need to know about criminal law so that you can Mm -hmm. go try a case. And a lot of us, even Harold, our state attorney, we all talk about the fact that we literally could get hired on Friday and be in trial on Monday and had no idea which way was up and had to try to figure it out. So then when I started teaching law students and dealing with the process before they came lawyers, I was like, oh, Lord, we are not preparing the babies, Jesus. We are not preparing the babies. Like, oh, Jesus, praise them. So I was like, okay, let me try to figure this out. And I taught for a company. I was faculty for the National Institute of Trial Advocacy and taught with them for a few years and saw how they were teaching lawyers. When I came out on my own, the truth is I was having an existential crisis at a ties plus while waiting on my breaks to get done. It was like, Jesus, listen, I know I'm not supposed to work for anybody else right now, but what I'm doing, we ain't vibing with that. So what am I going to do? And it was like, what do you like to do? And I love trials. Like I was built to be a trial lawyer, but I love teaching. And I was like, how do I put the two together and not repeat what Nita was already doing? So I decided that, as you can see, my delivery is not 
of a traditional lawyer. I don't do stuffy. I don't do pretentious. I don't do all the SAT words. I just don't. So I was like, I can reach solo and small firm attorneys where this is what they need. And sitting there in that tires plus girl, I created a company and was like, I'm going to help them because I want to pay it forward. That's really what I want to do. And I want to make sure that they're ready. And and I commend you for doing that because now, even for what I know, I studied, my background was in communications and PR, and then I have Mm -hmm. an advanced degree in education, Mm -hmm. but very little was taught about the actual skills that it takes, like between writing, public speaking, uh, even managing your mindset, what it takes to show up confidently, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's I really learned that in the workplace. And so Mm -hmm. for me as well, I decided to make that my focus and building my training company. So when you're teaching or your trial attorneys that you actually teach, are Mm -hmm. they more women or men? So sometimes I get a, it's never a 50, 50 split because we just have more of one than the other that will come to the programmings. And I usually actually get more women than men. But I will get about 30% men, 70% women at the workshops that I do. Okay. So for the coaching though, that I do, that's just for women because it's a different space that we occupy in these legal streets. (laughs) Listen, I read somewhere that the law industry, the profession was one Mm -hmm. of the least diverse industries least yes so first of all we know that there's a market but i could imagine that for women Mm -hmm. it is an important space for you to create for them because mainly i'm I'm imagining that you are probably sitting in the room with mostly men mostly mostly Mostly, men mostly white men mostly Mm. old white men and the thing is you got to think about The historical structure of our country on a whole was not built for us. It was not built for women. It was not definitely for sure not built for black women. So it's built on white slave owners. Like I hate to go there, but that's what it's built on. It's built on white men owning property. So that is the foundation of most of our industries. And when you think about lawyers and who lawyers were and the status that lawyers had at the time, and in my favorite freaking Broadway musical, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, they were white men. So our founding fathers, quote unquote, were white men. So this is what this industry is built out of. And as time progresses, usually we have to drag the legal industry kicking and screaming. (laughs) Right now, the pandemic is dragging us kicking and screaming into the technological age. We thought we were technological when we started e-filing. We were nowhere near as technological as we need to be to live in this virtual space. So yeah, the majority of lawyers are not minorities. We had to start diversity, equity, and inclusion programs all over the place just to make sure that women, uh, minority women, minority men were getting a seat at the table. And it is a space where the initial reaction to a woman in the courtroom is not that she's the lawyer. I'm telling you, I'm going to write a book that says, no, I'm not the 
court reporter. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about it because you wrote an article. One of your articles on LinkedIn was, no, I'm not the court reporter. That was the title. Yes. And you talked about the experiences of, and it's nothing wrong with being a court reporter. No, well, not yeah, at let's, all. Let's make that clear. They uh, are but you, and you all, you talked about that. And you also talked about even for black women being mistaken as the defendant. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So I could imagine that those types of experiences, sometimes as women, you could internalize those types of experiences. So what does it, it, it take for you to move past doubting your abilities and even struggling with a bit of imposter syndrome. Like maybe I don't belong in this room. Listen, that is work. And it's a lot of work that even I had to do. And when I tell people this, they're like, Tane, stop lying, not you. Because as you see, I will talk about anything. But me being assertive, because when you're in a skirt, it's aggressive. But me being assertive was actually a defense mechanism. It was my defense mechanism of you're not going to bully me in this courtroom, because that's how it can feel. It can feel as if because you're the only person in your gender on that side of the bar, that is not the court reporter or the defendant or the clerk, you can feel like you're being bullied. And it's not necessarily that opposing counsel means to do that or that the judge means to do that. It's just how it can feel. Now, there are some opposing counsel that they do actually intend on bullying you because you're a woman and you have to push back. So one of the things I would do is make sure I push back early and it was a defense mechanism. But there is this thought of, should I even be here? Am I not as good as I think I am? And it really is, for lack of a better phrase, from the devil. And you have to do the self-talk. You have to do the positive reaffirmations because the fact of the matter is you went to law school just like this man did. You passed the bar just like this man did. You have every right to be standing there arguing your case for your client just like this man is. But as women, we internalize a lot. We are the last set of people to apply for a job that we're not qualified for. We won't apply for a job we are qualified for because we talk ourselves out of the fact that we're qualified for it. Men ain't got that problem. They see something, they want it, they file for it. That's it. (laughs) They go after it. (laughs) That's it. So it's a different space for us, but it takes a lot of mental work. And one of the things I tell people is you got to go back to the root because there is somewhere in our childhood that we were not enough or we felt Mm. as if we were not enough. There is somewhere in our dating experiences where we felt as if we were not enough. There's somewhere in our professional experiences where we might've messed something up or we didn't know where we felt as if we were not enough. And as women, we pile those experiences together instead of letting them go. So that's one of the things that I try to work with women on, which is first of all, acknowledging where you are on the imposter syndrome like level and then figuring out, okay, how do we manage it? Because for some women, it never goes away. It never goes away. It never goes away. It never does. 
And so the funny thing is recently I came across two articles. One had an excerpt from one of the women who coined the term imposter syndrome. And Mm -hmm. she said, if she could do it all over again, she would actually call it imposter experience, I believe, Mm. because syndrome is such like a final thing that you always carry with you. And like Mm -hmm. you said, you could be on different sides or even in the middle of the spectrum. And Mm -hmm. so I would say for me, I struggle with imposter syndrome, but I would say it's an experience. It just really depends. Sometimes I'm fine. And just sometimes I'm not like, wait a minute, do they really want me? Did they read the name? Did they figure out I was from Brooklyn and I they know that? Brooklyn's (laughs) in the house. Sorry. (laughs) Do they know? Are they sure? So I am opening up to more so calling it just an experience because Mm -hmm. it can come and go. You don't have to claim it as something that's a part of you. However, there was another article in the Harvard Business Review, and it talked about, we talk a lot about the solutions being self-talk and all those things, which I totally agree with. Mm -hmm. However, what's less explored is the fact of what role the workplace plays in fostering and exacerbating mm-hmm. these, these environments where women just don't exist or you exactly. don't see women of color who look like you exactly. or you're dealing with microaggressions and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so really it's the workplace, but it's not you. Right. And so I think, and in, in I'm happy to see in industries such as yours and law, I know uh, a few people who have created some spaces in technology and mm-hmm. in the medical field, mm-hmm. because I do believe that just creating a space for people to move past or learn how to manage these feelings to show right. up better is key. Yeah. And so- Let's talk about your process, though, of preparing to enter the courtroom, because (laughs) not only do you have to prepare, right, your story Uh and things like that, but now you have to also prepare to manage your mindset when you walk in that room. Listen, okay, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's not. I literally pray before every trial, literally, because... When I was trying cases regularly, so the way my imposter syndrome progressed or my imposter experience progressed is when I first started trying cases and had no freaking clue which way was up, I was nervous the entire trial, like just a mess, but I hit it very well. So nobody knew. Then it decreased to where I was only nervous until I rested my case. Then I was only nervous until I got through jury selection. Then I was only nervous. I got it all the way down to I was only nervous until my jury panel got seated for me to do selection. So when the judge said, let's call up the jury panel, it was like, crap. Okay, you got this. So it really involved prayer and self-talk before I knew what self-talk was. Because prayer, because most of my cases are criminal cases. I had somebody's life in my hands Mm. and I had to be sober about that because that was the whole purpose of me being a prosecutor is to make sure that you had somebody fair and objective on this side of the bench. I had somebody's life in my hands and I recognized that. I also had a victim's life in my hands most times, especially once I got to felony and I recognized that too and had to balance it out. So I always pray, God, if I miss something, you handle it. 
You know what I mean? Whichever way this is supposed to go, it's going to be your will. So that was the first step. The second step with my mindset was, hey, hey, you got this. (laughs) You totally got this. Nobody in this courtroom knows this case better than you. You know that. And you can try a case in your sleep. Whether you believe it or not, you can. So it was this, don't worry about it. We got this kind of self-talk that I would do. As I progressed, we still did prayer. We still did self-talk, but we might've added in a little Tupac every now and then to really get our mind right. All eyes on me. Ambition as a rider, you know what I mean? <laughs> so. Don't you love when you can just bring your full self? That's it. what you do. Ain't no hiding. Y'all gonna get this ain't. Y'all gonna get this all eyes on me from Tupac. Y'all gonna get it all. I love it. That's it. So I love to, one of the things I love to hear is just the conversations that women have with themselves, because Mm -hmm. I do feel like part of your, a huge part of your success is having a better conversation with yourself. So I love that you said prayer and the self-talk piece, Mm -hmm. because often, listen, especially Black women, we are going to take a course. We are going to get a degree. We are going to get multiple degrees, okay? More degrees than a thermometer, okay? Okay, but on top of that, equally important is managing the mindset that's going to require or going to help you show up even more confident Mm -hmm. and own that courtroom. Mm-hmm. Now, something else that you are really a proponent of is just the storytelling piece yes. of it all. Now, tell us about that, because I, I feel like, again, that this is advice that applies to all of us. I often say your success is based on the story you tell yourself and the story you share with the world. It exactly. just is going to change. So, so talk us through that storytelling piece and why it's important for you in the courtroom. So here's the thing about storytelling. Every good trial lawyer is a great storyteller. And here's why. You've got six, nine, 12, however many people they see in your box that know nothing about what is going on. And the truth is there were studies that were done that told us that the average education level of your jury panel is fifth grade. So if I have to make sure that when I deliver the information, I can reach somebody that has the education level of a fifth grader and the judge and anybody else that might be higher than that education level or lower than that education level. Cause average means that's the middle. Right. How do I reach all those people? I tell a story. I can't sit here and say, because John breached the contract, we have these damages that we need to ascertain when you carry the one. Nobody's listening to that doesn't resonate with people. We're emotional creatures. Even though you cannot ethically play on a juror's emotions, we're emotional creatures. I have to tell you a story that pulls you in and you're like, holy crap, what just happened? Wait, okay, so what's going to happen next? What is she about to do? Because I have to keep your attention. And especially now with social media and smartphones and all the technology we have, we now have the attention span of a gnat. 
So I need to make sure that when I'm talking, at least you're like, no, I'm gonna listen to her because she all right. She actually saying something that I can relate to. So storytelling, what we have to understand is that is the oldest form of communication. That's how we communicated before we started writing things down. You pass the story from one generation to the other. It was sophisticated telephone. You remember back in the day when you used to play telephone as a kid and by the time it got to the last person, it wasn't nothing like what the first person actually said, same thing. So in order to eliminate the barriers with playing telephone, I tell the story at the same time to the same six people to make sure that they can understand what I'm talking about. The example I always use when I teach is Denzel, one, because he's fine, he's Denzel. Listen. And two, because it was so appropriate, but it's Denzel in Philadelphia. Every single time he would say, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old because it forced people to use everyday words. Lawyers can get so caught up in all these words that we have paid student loans for, but y'all don't know what we are saying. Y'all don't know. And if you don't know, I can't get you to agree with me if you don't understand what I'm saying. So storytelling becomes key because it breaks barriers and it breaks barriers in every industry. If I can tell you a story, I can get you to understand what I'm saying. A lot of things, a lot of things that we deal with as a society, you would be able to pierce through at least with this individual person much better if you're telling a story rather than making an argument. Once you're making an argument, everybody's on the defensive. But if you're telling a story, everybody's listening. So that's what you got to do. If I need you to listen to the position of the state of Florida, for one, I might not say that it's the state of Florida. You know who I am. I'm the prosecutor in the room, but I represent the people of Broward County. That's different. That's you sitting in this seat. So it's all about choosing the words that will get through. Mm. And when people really understand that, they can do that in any industry. I love that. Now, what role does your energy or personality play in that story? Because I could imagine that's important too, right? It is. And I think because one of the things we always say is trial is theater and every actor is different. Every actor's delivery is different. And the role that your personality plays is it is who you are. If you are faking it, they will know. So you want to make sure that you're being as much of your authentic self as possible. I'm not going to walk in there and I'm talking to my boy that was in Brooklyn. Hey, player, listen, this is what we're doing today. Because they're not expecting that. They're expecting a polished lawyer. You know what I mean? But my animated style of delivery is what I use because it pulls them in. And they're like, oh, wait, she ain't stuffy. Yes, that is okay. So it does. Every actor is different. And there are times where the way you deliver it matters even more than what you're delivering because Mm. the way we communicate has so many levels and the way people receive information has so many levels. So if I need to reach people that receive information in different ways, I have to be more dynamic in my personality and delivering that information. I love that. How do you prepare for the pushback or 
the the argument, I should say, because I think a lot of the times, even showing up at work and speaking up, one of the fears we have is just dealing with the pushback. What if people disagree with what I'm presenting? So how do you prepare for that? And what's your best advice for minimizing the fear? So two things. First, you have to split it apart, meaning split apart the things you do control and the things you don't. What you do control is your delivery of the information. What you don't control is how it's received. So a lot of times, and it is difficult because I'm dealing with this right now, where my idea is brilliant. As far as I'm concerned, it's me. It's brilliant. It's freaking awesome. Like we should absolutely do it. I don't understand why you don't want to do it. But I can't say that because then you're never going to want to do it. So I have to recognize that sometimes, like your mama used to say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. If I provide the water and I get you there and you don't want to drink, that's no longer on me. That's on you. Mm -hmm. Because nine times out of 10, we're expressing these ideas to a supervisor or somebody in a managerial position or somebody that is quote unquote above us, even though I hate that phrase, but somebody who is in a decision-making position, that's really what it is. If I give you all the information you need in order to make an informed decision, that's what I control. So I prepare, I make sure I have my facts. I make sure I understand how you receive information. I make sure I understand your trigger words because everybody has trigger words where the moment you say them, they are shutting down. So I make sure I understand all of that about you and I give you the information. What you do on it, do with it is now on you. And mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that you minimize that fear. We have to stop taking responsibility for stuff that is not our responsibility. As black women, we will take responsibility for every freaking thing. We need to stop it. Like we just need to stop. No, you are not responsible for anything other than what is in your control. Right. And that's one of the ways. I love that. And that's true. A lot of the time, even when we think about the reasons why we won't ask for more money or we won't speak up and say something is bothering us is because we want to manage the feelings of the other person. Yes. And you have to let that go. Hello. Somebody said something in a DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And when she initially said it, I was like, I don't know how I really feel about this. But then when I thought about it, I was like, okay, I see why you said that. She was like, listen, I'm not here to make you comfortable. And I was like, this is how we gonna start this meeting? Like, that's what you gonna start with? You just gonna lead out with, I ain't here to make you feel better? I was like, oh, but I need to feel better though. And that's the problem. When you're talking about uncomfortable topics, the person you're talking to does not want to feel uncomfortable. And then you don't want them to feel uncomfortable. But the truth is she gave responsibility to us for how we felt about what she was presenting mm -hmm. because she wasn't trying to beat us up. She wasn't trying to point fingers or anything like that. She was like, listen, this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation and I'm not here to make you comfortable. So let's just get that out the way and let's talk about the rest of what we need to talk about. But that's what it is. It's us trying to make this other person comfortable. And yes, when it's your boo thing, you need to figure that out. When it's the person signing your check, you need to walk a thinner line. But no, I'm not here to make you comfortable. If right is right and wrong is wrong. And of course, because as by now, I believe in God. The fact of the matter is you're not my source. I think mm -hmm. if we really internalize 
that this job, this person, whoever it is, is not your source, but God is your source or the universe or whatever it is you want to call them, you take a different stance. Me and my mama, we call it, you can't fire nobody who is more than ready to quit. And not that I'm ready to quit from a bad perspective, but in that I know if I walk out the door today, God's got something for me tomorrow. So I think putting those two things together where I'm not responsible for how you feel unless I intentionally hurt you or I set out to do that and you're not responsible for my well-being, then we can have different conversations. And the fact of the matter is, it's hard for women to ask for more money. It really is. Mm -hmm. But we're worth it. And that's what we have to internalize first, that we're worth it and then go have the conversation. What do you, have you ever had challenges with asking for more? And when did you, if so, when did you become comfortable? With Child, that's an everyday process. Because exactly. again, with our imposter experience, right. it's hard for women to do it. And it's one of those things where men ain't got that problem. They like, mm-hmm. listen, I'm worth $250,000. Sir, you're not worth $25. But the way your self-esteem is set up, I commend you. <laughs> and that's our issue. Our issue is we haven't recognized our worth. So we will always undercut ourselves. We will always undersell ourselves. I was talking to another friend of mine who one of the things she was working on was her prices as a lawyer. This woman has 20 some odd years of experience doing what she's doing, charging, and at the point she was charging maybe a third of what folks coming straight out and not knowing nothing was charging. But again, for all of us, it's our perception of our self-worth. For me, I had a business coach where just last year, she was like, Tanya, you need to raise your prices. I was like, but, and she was like, listen, I want to hear it. You need to raise your prices. Do you know how fabulous you are? I was like, clearly not. So it's right. a struggle, a continuous struggle, right. because we'll get comfortable at a particular level. And then when it's time to push to that next level, that's when the resistance comes back. So I've gotten to a level where I'll push you for six figures all day long. Like you offering me anything less. I don't know. You you got to tell me that Jesus told you to do that. (laughs) But (laughs) my range in those six figures now, that's what I'm working on with leveling up to next. Okay. I love that. And you know, I had a similar experience. I got a coach and she's, you're charging what? What? So what, where'd you get that from? Are you you serious? (laughs) Yeah. Like, how are you eating? And for me too, one of the things that I've learned is confidence comes from community. And I I realized and being in a room with these women and they're talking about seven figure businesses and, oh, my goal is to make 10 million this year. I only, I made 5 million. I'm trying to figure out. And I'm like, wait, what? It it made me, and and to be very honest, it made me uncomfortable. Like, girl, bye. Like, you want to make what? (laughs) But as I begin to put myself in those rooms continuously, I began to see it for Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. And I began to also understand that even if someone says no, no ain't got nothing to do with Candy and her coins. (laughs) I'm just going to keep it going. And I also realized too, from people who, to your point, when you talked about the the male lawyers Mm -hmm. uh, who were very confident, one of the things I've realized is, listen, confidence doesn't equal competence. Okay. They could be confident but it ain't got nothing to do with their level of readiness 
to be in the room with you. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for for sharing that. So you and I have something and we have a a few things in common, but one of the things in one of your articles, you said you hated the phrase, uh, stay in your lane. Girl, that gets under my skin. (laughs) I almost threw something at the screen like, yes, because I love the article so much because I think that we are, I believe that you could live almost multiple lives in one lifetime. If you want to change careers, expand your career, what have you. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that you don't come off as the traditional stuffy lawyer. You have some flavor there (laughs) and personality. And in addition to your work, you also have a passion for helping to elevate women. When did you know it was time to switch lanes or I should say expand your lane? (laughs) So it's a funny story, actually, how I'm in the position I'm in now. Because I'm in, I was talking to my mom and I was like, you know what, guy got jokes because this thing got set up essentially nine years ago and I didn't even know that's what was happening. So when I came back from California, I started teaching at Nova and it was only a part-time capacity in 2009 because they literally overbooked the school. Like they had a whole extra section. And that's how I started teaching at Nova. And it was only supposed to be a one-year thing. And then somebody left and I was now in a position permanently, but teaching is where I met Harold. And I was his mock trial coach. And I'm not knowing in 2009 that that Harold prior is going to become the state attorney in 2021. I'm not even thinking about that. So at first I actually felt bad because I felt like my resume was schizophrenic because I had three years at the state attorney's office. Then I went out to California and California was a wilderness experience because I was in California for three years and only employed as a lawyer for six months. Okay then, because my first year was me getting the LLM degree. And then I took the bar, waited. And that whole time I was working as a sales agent, a leasing agent for a temporary apartment community, like what temporary agency where they send out leasing agents to all these various uh, apartment complexes. I had two law degrees and was a leasing agent in California. So it wasn't until six months before I left in March of 2008 that I finally was actually operating as a lawyer. So then I come back and I'm at this one place and then Nova calls and now I'm at Nova and I felt like my resume was schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. But now that I look back, I'm like, God had a plan and he was building all these pieces And I think what I would tell women, mostly women, because men, again, ain't got that problem. And the truth is, it also depends on generation because millennials don't have that problem. Mm -hmm. Millennials will be in a job for a year or two and be like, nope, I need to progress. And this is where I'm going to go. In my generation, which is Gen X, they taught us because what our parents knew was you get a job, you stay there, you retire and you go off on whatever the retirement plan is. So that's what they taught us. So once you were no longer in that job forever that you were supposed to be in forever, you now felt like a failure. And I had to realize, no, I was getting all the pieces I needed for this job that I'm sitting in right now. 
I became an employment lawyer when I went back out doing insurance defense. I never would have been nobody's employment lawyer, not ever. But it prepared me to now be doing hiring and recruiting, which never would have been on my list before. So I had to realize that all the lane shifts were actually a part of the plan, but they don't feel good when you're doing them. And it requires two things. It requires understanding that sometimes when you're in the process, you won't understand the process, Mm -hmm. but it works and it's going to work the way it should work. It also requires understanding your end goal and keeping your eye on that prize and understanding that sometimes you're going to have to exit the highway, but you're going to get back on later. Sometimes you need to change lanes. You can no longer travel in that left lane because you are not moving fast enough. There were times where I had to get out and push the car and it was tough, but I was still going down the road. And that I think is the part that we have to focus on because if we focus on how many times we make lane shifts, again, as women, we're gonna internalize it as failure, especially if you got any ounce of perfectionism in you like I do because it just messes with your psyche and you got to let that go too. But that is how I dealt with the shifts. Right. Trust the process, party people. Girl, I ain't there yet. I'm working on it. But I because my bishop is saying this phrase that you have to thank God for the process. I was like, I ain't there yet, bishop. I ain't there. (laughs) It's so very true. It doesn't feel good. When you are in that space and you feel like you're jumping around and you're Mm -hmm. switching lanes when everybody in the world is saying, stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. But I've had that similar experience where I've switched across some lanes very abruptly (laughs) (laughs) and then switched back across to that first lane very abruptly. Mm -hmm. But now sitting here, it all makes sense. And I would totally agree with your words of encouragement, just trust that it will all make sense and keep moving. That's that's been a goal for me. Candia, what could you do? What's the next best thing you could do to keep moving? That's it. That's it. And sometimes you will be at a crawl and that's okay. Hmm. It's giving ourselves that space because especially black women, we just got to go. And so if you don't sit down somewhere and process this and then get back out there, because I was telling somebody, because they were like, nobody knows all of what you were dealing with over the last couple of years. And I was like, nope, they sure don't. And she was like, that is a testament in and of itself. I said, but here's the thing. It's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in that. Yes. I thank God I did not look like what I was going through. It's a curse because it really comes from my childhood where we, you didn't have time to sit down and cry about nothing. Mm-hmm. It's you just got to keep going. And like I told her, I was, I, I was functionally depressed for years and nobody knew because you just had to get up and keep going. I get right. I still went to work. I still gave my work the best I could, you know what I mean? But nobody knew. And that can be the curse in that we will carry everything and not tell anybody. When you say you were functionally depressed. Now, <laughs> when did you did you always call it like I I, I feel like I'm depressed or was it 
a moment when you went to seek help and you're like, oh, I am depressed. Because I think in my discussions with women, sometimes it's, I didn't even know I was depressed. And then I seen somebody and I said, that's depression. So it don't help that my mom is a therapist, but oh, Lord. <laughs> girl, listen. So thankfully, she let me go on and put you on the prayer list. Listen, she became a therapist in my later life, though, because I'm like, I wish you had had some of these skills when we was younger and you were threatening to plaster us all over the wall. But that's okay. I think in watching her do her work and some of the stuff that she would do, even without that, I knew I wasn't me. I knew I wasn't living life the way I always lived life. I had this fearlessness, this get out and go that I knew was gone. And because I knew it was gone, I was like, tell you, that's depressed. You are depressed, but you have to keep going. Mm-hmm. You are, I was, I was mad with God. I sure was. I was absolutely mad with God. And people will say, you can't say that. You can't do that. Especially folks who grew up under the church. And I'm like, listen, me and Jesus, we done worked it out. This is our relationship. It ain't none of your business, but I was mad with God. And he knew that. And I was mad with God for a while. Mm. And I knew that was a part of the problem, but I had to keep going. I didn't have time to sit down and process that I'm mad with God. Because guess what? You God. And until you decide for it to change, it ain't going to change. So what's the purpose of me telling you that I'm mad with you? Because you already know that was me. So I knew that Tanya was not fully Tanya. And then I ran into a situation that it was like, hey, you need to go sit on somebody's couch. Mm -hmm. And it was like, all right, let's go try to work this out. And that's what I did. I love it. And I love your story, this entire conversation that we've had, because I'm I'm thinking about some of the most profound things that you said, and just even getting ready for the courtroom. None of it, some of your best investments have been just the Mm self-awareness, the process of prayer and self-talk. And you've even talked about investing in a business coach as well, but nothing is like the, tra- the, the things that they would tell us in school Not <laughs> or even in the, in, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so I think now though, we may be at a bit of a reckoning because even in the workplace now, managers, leaders in the workplace, you have to be very vocal about even just identifying that some people may be struggling. And if you need help, here are some resources. And I think that one of the things that I try to encourage people to understand is that in the midst of showing up for yourself, you can show up for yourself despite feeling uncertain, self-doubt, anxiety, Mm -hmm. you can still show up for yourself. So I thank you in being so transparent about your journey especially as a lawyer, because I think that sometimes in our society, we look at people who have these titles and these careers and we think she has two law degrees. She shouldn't have a problem. Exactly. She should be happy. Exactly. So I definitely want to thank you. So listen, y'all heard it. Okay. If you in a lane, you could switch lanes. Okay. Cross over those lanes. Don't stay in it. It's okay. Okay. How can my people stay connected with you? So I am everywhere, even though I still need to get my whole social media life together. Mm. 
like you said, I'm on LinkedIn. I think it's still the Williams Firm PA, but if you put in Tanya Williams, T-A-N-I-A, y'all, on LinkedIn, you'll find me. I'm also on Facebook as the Skilled Advocate Company. That's my company where I still help lawyers learn what they need to learn in order to own their courtroom. And that's the company that I help women break out of and be their most authentic self in their courtroom. So the Skilled Advocate Company at skilledadvocacy.com is where you can find me or on Facebook at the Skilled Advocate Company. I am also on Instagram, but I'm learning my whole Instagram. And no, (laughs) I'm not on TikTok. I just can't. I can't add another social media thing. (laughs) I just can't. (laughs) No worries, everyone. I'm definitely going to link her profile in the show notes. I'm also going to link my favorite articles and the reason, the main reason why I asked her to be on the podcast today so listen i will talk to y'all people next week thank you for listening oh and if this episode touched your heart in any way y'all know what to do hit share and comment talk to you next week